Um, it was funny this morning. Uh, Sheena's son, David, uh, he, him and my daughter, Navi, they were sneaking around the church. Um, and they were just coming up, and you could see them. They would poke their heads out, and then they would come back in, and then poke their heads out, <laughs> come back in. And then they're just waiting for you not to notice. And I remember doing that as a kid. I would go into my room, and I would hear my mom say, Come here. And I would run into my room. Um, and then I would get on my bed, and I would take the sheets and the covers, and I'd just make them all look really bad, you know, just mess them up. And then I'd hide under the sheets and the covers. And I would just wait for her to come in. And then um, if I could do my job well, I would be completely quiet, completely still, and... I would really regulate my breathing so I, would, so I wouldn't even move. And then I would do one of two things. I'd either jump out, right, and scare her, or I would wait till she left, get, get out, keep the thing as best I could the way it was, and then go sit at my desk and, like, do something, like draw or something. So she would walk back in, and she goes, where were you? And I'd be like, I was right here the whole time. Didn't you see me? <laughs> you know? And so I would do this a lot. And my kids do the exact same thing. They try to run around and they try to sneak around. And, but they're not good at it. I could be totally engrossed in working on something and I hear them. They're, they sound like rhinoceroses running through it, you know. And, yeah, and, and so um, when they try to do the laying under the covers thing, I just walk in and I just go, man, no one's here. And then I just jump on the bed. And I just lay on it. I'm like, oh, this is so comfortable. And then they just struggle because now they're being suffocated. <laughs> and so, but one of the things I realize as the kids do this, um, and this is like the spiritual pastor, right, is I realize that um, through doing this, I was actually reenacting the greatest gift I, could, I have ever gotten, which is the resurrection life. You know, because I would sit there as still as death, just to burst forth in my victory over my mom, you know? And so that's what we're going to talk about today is resurrection. Um, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where we're picking back up our study in uh, Corinthians. So we're going to be in chapter 15 today. So as we're getting there, we're going to kind of catch up where we're at um, so we kind of took a break last week just in the sense of going through Corinthians. Instead, we were focusing our focus on uh, roles of women. And so we went into, I hope, enough detail in that. Uh, there's a lot more that could be said, but I'm not teaching a, a theological course here. So we just kind of hit the point and move on. Um, but let's kind of catch up where we're at so far because we're in the 15th chapter. There's only two chapters left in Corinthians, and then we're done with this summer series. And so at this point, we've come so far into understanding that Paul writes Corinthians, the first one, for a very specific reason, and that is, remember, unity. Okay, some of you remember, that's all right. Um, but it is unity. We, uh, he writes this because there's disunity in the Corinthian church, and so he, he writes to them to get this unity going. So if we could get that up there, Ethan, that'd be great. Um, and so Paul's trying to restore this unity, and he does this, really, we, we said in two parts. Now, we've went through, we are in, I think it's week 19 of this study, so we've gone pretty in-depth, right? That's more than 15. 
Um, and so we've spent a lot of time going through this. And the first 10 chapters just focus on the personal relationships that Christians are to have with each other to, so that unity can happen. And so we went through all those. And then the second half, starting in chapter 11, going through the rest of the book, um, it is about the, relation, or the, the worship time that we do right now. So when we all get together for our worship of God, um, that's when... Uh, chapters 11 through 15 or through 16 happen. Now, one of the things that was brought up a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this is um, there's a misunderstanding that the things that Paul is talking about in 11 through uh, 16, it's about this corporate worship time, okay? We need to stress that because um, one of the things we talked about women being silent in the church, and we want to make sure that. Paul's not, he's not saying, women, you have to be quiet all the time, right? That's not what he's saying. And, and so we're talking specifically about that hour, right? Or ours is an hour and a half, right? That we worship together. And so we need to emphasize that, all right? So that's where we're at. We're at this point where we're coming to the end of the corporate worship teaching. Right? Make sense? Are we good? Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. And as we're going into chapter 15, all so far, Paul has been going after the practices of the worship time. Okay, so we talked about head coverings. We've talked about uh, communion. We've talked about spiritual gifts. We've talked about the order of services. We've talked about roles of men and women in, the, in this time. And so all of this are practices, actual practicing during this stuff, right? Now we're actually going to be talking about a teaching. And so Paul's kind of changing from the practices to an actual teaching that's going on that he needs to address, okay? So we're going to read through this, and we're going to read through the first 11 verses, and then we'll um, go through the next ones after that. So if you have Bibles, um, we'll be reading through that. So here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1, and I'm just going to read through. Now brothers, and sis, uh, now, brothers, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. Um, if you hold firmly to the word I have preached to you, otherwise you have, um, sorry, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Though he, then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also as to one normally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and grace and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. But then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. And so we're going to stop right there. And so just this idea that Paul is talking about the resurrection. Now, this is a huge huge um, passage in the Bible. Um, it can't be underscored enough. Uh, this right here, these first four verses, or five verses, is what's called a creed. Okay? A creed of the church. All right? So 
Yeah, there we go. So Paul is giving us the first creed of the church written down. Now this creed is really important. Now if you don't know what a creed is, a creed is a very simple thing. It's it's basic teachings of the of Christian, the basic teachings of what we believe. And so Paul, when he writes this, listen to what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What is that? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Okay? So this is really important because this tells us a lot about what the early church believed. Okay, now, if you know any creeds, you might have heard of what's called the Nicene Creed. And that's a creed, if you've ever said it in church, sometimes uh, we say it. Um, it talks about uh, God being the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. Uh, there's that. There's the doxology. Um, in the church, we used to sing that a lot. Um, but we have actually sung a more modern version of that called I Believe. Um, and basically, it's just these teachings of the church. And here, Paul's giving us this very first teaching. And this is really important. It's not just important because it's the first teaching. But it's also important because we can trace this. One of the things about the Bible is the question always comes, can I trust the Bible? Right? Can I trust this thing? Because it's written by people. Because it's written years after. In fact, the, what we're talking about in Corinthians is written... Um, about 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? So the question always becomes, did something happen in that time? And in fact, Paul gets accused a lot of changing things. And so that becomes a real important thing. That's why this is so important, this creed, because there are scholars that go back and say, how far can we trace this back? Okay? And so there's a guy named Bart Ehrman. He's an agnostic uh, New Testament scholar. He said, trace it back within five years of the event of Christ's death. Okay? Another guy, his name is Dan, uh, Daniel Wallace, uh, he says, I can trace it back to two years. And there's some other scholars, um, I can't remember their names, so you'd have to look this up, that says, I can, I can take it back to six months. That's really important. Because what Paul's going to say here is not something that he made up. And that's what he's saying. I'm not telling you this stuff that I made up. Instead, I'm giving you this stuff that has been around for a long time. This is really important stuff here. And so when we're talking about what Paul is giving us here, that's what we're talking about. Really important stuff. And you're going to see how important as we go on. So Paul goes through this and he talks about how Peter, the 12, 500 people. He talks about James the apostles, and he talks about himself, all have seen Jesus is resurrected. And so he's saying all these things. Now, if you are a parent, or if you want to know something, you hear a crash in the other room. And you go, I wonder what happened. And you walk in, and there's two people standing there, two little ones standing there. And you ask the question, what happened? Right? There are two eyewitness accounts here. And you're going to get two different stories. Right? right? I didn't do What's it. important about what Paul is saying here is that he says you got Peter, you got the apostles, you got James, and he says you have 500 other people. He says, and last of all, me. He's saying you have all these eyewitnesses to what I'm telling you here. 
And he talks about, and there are some that are still alive of those 500. Or he says most of them are alive, some have, have died. And so he's saying, look, there are eyewitness testimony to this that are still, 25 years later, are still available for you to investigate this for yourself. In fact, that's what Luke does. The whole gospel of Luke is Luke going and actually investigating this whole thing. And so we have this whole thing where Paul is saying, look, I'm giving you something that has been around for years. I'm giving you names and people that are going to, I can direct you towards if you are interested in eyewitness accounts of this. And he's saying all this stuff. And then I love how he adds this. He says, and then there's me. And he says, I'm the least. What's interesting in the Greek, it says, I am abnormally born. And that's interesting because the connotation there, it's like, okay, so he's got like a deformed ear. No. Um, it's really, it's the idea of miscarriage. That's the idea. He's saying, I am like not supposed to be here. And he gives the reason why. Because I persecuted the church. He's like, but God still allowed me the grace to be here. To be a part of this. To witness him rising. To be in this whole situation where now I get to talk to you. And so in the course of history, Paul's like, I'm not even worth being an apostle, but by the grace of God I'm here. And so this is what he's trying to get across to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, I have something important to tell you. A core teaching of the church has been around for a long time. There's eyewitnesses here. I'm one of them. And I shouldn't be, but I am. Because what he's going to go on to say in the next few verses is really important because it is a teaching that was happening that started uh, in Corinth and in the surrounding areas and continued on for hundreds of years and continues on even into the church today. Okay? So we're going to talk about that. So let's drop down. All right? Am I keeping up with you? Ethan? Good? All right. Okay, good. All right, so we're going to be we're going to drop down into verse 12. It says, "But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith." More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as if in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God. 
the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and the power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. That's a lot to read. Okay? And that's back and forth. Man, Paul's got this back and forth thing that he writes, and it's just, it's, anyways. But Paul, what Paul is talking about is, so there's this movement within um, the church that's saying, okay, Jesus didn't really resurrect. Now, here's the thing. The words used by Paul, he's using this idea of resurrect. And they are two Greek words that really mean physical, okay? It means to get up, to get out. To physically get up, get out. Okay, that's the words he's using. So when he's saying, there are people saying that Christ hasn't raised, what he's saying is bodily, okay, physically. Okay, so that's the teaching that's going around. People are going around saying Jesus didn't really raise physically. Okay, now what's interesting is Jim was talking about this in his class this morning. There's a group called Gnostics, okay, this is what would end up happening. But at the time, it's rooted in this uh, Platonic view of the world. So Plato, not the dough, but the person, okay? Um, he was a Greek philosopher, and he was talking about these things of ideas, okay? So we're just going to use that terminology. Um, so he's using these things. He calls them forms. But we're going to just call them ideas, okay? So the idea that ideas are really important. And it eventually comes to this point where it gets the spiritual is better than the physical. All right? So the spiritual holds the truth. The spiritual is the good. And this physical is kind of this bad thing. It's, it's not where truth is found. You have to go into, this, um, into the spiritual, into the ideas, into this other place to actually get good information. Now what will eventually become is the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believe that not only is that the way it is, that the spiritual is better than the physical, but that the physical is actually evil. And, that, and this is the roots that we actually see what Paul is starting to talk about and that what later writers would talk about even more. Is that this idea is because the physical is evil, that Jesus did not raise to, with a physical body, with a bodily body. Rather, it was a tearing off of the spirit of the physical and being released into the spiritual. That was the teaching that Paul is saying, no, that's not what happened. Because the teaching goes like this. The, a, the God of the Old Testament, okay, this is the Gnostic, the God of the Old Testament, demerge. He creates so you have the creator god jesus and he creates but then demerge comes in and then kind of binds physicalness to god's perfect spiritual world and that is work and so jesus comes to give a secret knowledge this is the where the word comes from gnosis um the term for secret knowledge that we would be broken free from this world spiritually, okay? And so the idea here 
is Paul saying, stop with that. It's Jesus really did come physically. He really did take on human flesh. He really did, as the Hebrew writer says, and all things was like us, yet did not sin. And so everything that Jesus said, he walked. And it's really hard sometimes to, to fathom this, but Jesus needed water. He needed to drink. He needed to sleep. He needed to go to the bathroom. Jesus actually did all these things. And so he was like us in every single way except for one difference. He didn't sin. That's the only difference between us when Jesus comes. Sin. But he got tired. I love this shirt that says, be like Jesus, Jesus took naps. Okay? That's true. Jesus, he got tired. He needed time alone. In fact, he told his disciples at one point, you guys go ahead, I'm going to take a break. That's the paraphrase. But this is the thing. Jesus physically came to earth and he physically died. He did die. It wasn't in the, in the Muslim belief, the idea is that Jesus um, was, his likeness was put onto another's like, um, person and they switched. That's not what the scriptures say. It was Jesus on there. The Gnostics believe that it was just the, the physical body that was being crucified, not anything else. That wasn't really Jesus. Jesus left at that point. That's not what the scriptures said. Jesus died on the cross. And it presents to us one of the greatest um, conundrums in the world. How does God die? But Jesus is on the cross. He dies physically. And then He's in the ground. And then, three days later, He rises physically. In fact, He goes. And Thomas, say what you want about Thomas. Thomas is probably the most real person in the Scriptures because he says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the grave until I can put my hands into His wounds. I would do the same thing because I don't want to be had. And so Jesus comes to Thomas and he says, put your hands, put your finger in my wounds. Right, Caleb? He tells him to put finger in my side. He tells him to do these things because it's a physical resurrection. And Paul's saying it is a physical resurrection. Do not believe this false idea that Jesus just, it was a spiritual thing. You know, one of the things that we need to talk about is there's a lot of things that God has given us in physical things that are good things. The problem is it's been corrupted. Right? Things that we use improperly corrupt Right? And so, why is drinking alcohol, um, why can that lead us to sin? I mean, Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine. But too much of it is what causes us to go into drunkenness, which causes us to go into sin. Mm -hmm. Right? It's these things that take into the 
extreme, then it becomes bad. Sexuality, it's the same thing. God created it. He tells, we're not getting too graphic here, but He tells the first humans, go and multiply. You know what that means? Yes. (laughs) Go. It was a good thing. But when taken to places where it shouldn't, outside of the marriage bed, then it becomes the sin. And this is the thing. The physicality isn't the problem. The sin is the problem. But the, these, the, what would become the Gnostics were holding on to this idea that the physical was bad. And that we had to release it. And so they were teaching that Jesus didn't really die of physical death. And that he didn't really raise physically. And so Paul's saying, no, that is wrong. And so this goes to the next thing. Paul emphasizes Jesus' resurrection, right? So this is huge because Paul is he's emphasizing this is the point. And if his is resurrected to new life, physically then so will ours all those that trust in jesus as their savior they will also rise physically it is a physical resurrection okay so got all those we're good we're we're on the same page so far okay i just want to make sure i mean i talk for a long time and i just see your guys eyes go and so i just want to make sure we're, uh, we're going in the same direction Okay, so let's kick off to the next one, Ethan. Because this is important. So Paul says that at the body of resurrection, this is a huge part. So Paul is emphasizing this idea that the bodily resurrection is real. That Christ did rise physically, right? But then he puts something in there that I think is really important for us. And it's actually become a really uh, guy... Um, I forget the guy's name, but he wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. Paul is stating a very simple thing. You want to know how you get, you want to prove Christianity false. There is one way to prove Christianity false, and Paul gives it in this chapter. It's very simple. Prove that Jesus didn't rise physically. That's all you have to do, is prove that Jesus did not rise physically. And you will prove that Christianity is false. That's a very simple task to do, right? Except it's not. So in this book, Cold Case Christianity, um, he's a, I believe he's an L.A. detective um, that he made his name known for cold cases. That's what he did. He would go around and solve cold cases. And so someone challenged him to prove this cold case wrong the resurrection of Jesus. And so he went through all the evidence that's using the, the Bible, using the, um, the, the people around at the time that were writing, all the different arguments for and against. And at the end of it, he puts down his whole book. He says, there's more evidence for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus to be true than not. And because of that, he gave his life to Christ. And now he goes around speaking on this. And so this is a huge thing. 
you can prove that Jesus did not rise physically, Paul's saying then all of Christianity, in fact, he says, we who put our hope in Christ should be pitied if Jesus didn't raise physically. Why? Because our hope is in nothing. Because think about this. If Jesus didn't raise physically, then the Bible is untrue. And the fact that it might be historically accurate in, in parts, but the overall teaching that God creates the world because He loves and He wants to create and so he creates and he puts his image on humans and then humans mess it up and they throw the world into corruption because of their own rebellion against him because they wanted it their way and not his way. And then that carries forth through today because we're still dealing with that. How many of us struggle with that? No, God, I'll do it my way, please. That's a huge thing. And so it continues even down to today. And yet God says, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you just go off and be destroyed. Instead, God says, I myself will come down. The sun comes down bodily, as we've already talked about, lives the perfect life just like us, except he doesn't sin. He dies a death that's unjustified for him, but it's justice for us meaning that he didn't deserve the death, but all the wrath of God is put on him and not us. And anyone that puts their trust into Jesus is now free of sin, and they can walk with God into eternity. And that eternal life with God has possibilities that we can't even fathom today. But if Jesus didn't raise physically, all of it is wrong. That's how, what Paul is hinging the physical resurrection of Jesus on. He's saying all of it. And he actually uses this term, it comes, or this saying comes from Isaiah. He says, we should just eat, drink, and be married. Basically, we should indulge. And he's telling, now you have to understand, he's telling the Corinthians this. And the Corinthians we've talked about, they're pretty good at indulging their every sexual, um, physical desire. They have no problem going out and getting drunk. They have no problem going out and having sexual relations with anything that walks. They have no problem doing all these things. And so Paul basically tells them, if the resurrection did not happen physically, then go out and do it. Because there's no point. That's a huge thing to say. Because Paul just spent 15 chapters trying to get them woken up to where God is wanting to take them. And in one, in one passage, he says, but if Jesus doesn't rise, forget everything I just wrote. That's a huge thing. Okay? And so this is what Paul says. In the Christian faith, it's false. But if it's true, if Jesus did rise from the grave, then everything, every single word, every single situation happened. That means at some point in the future, all of us are going to be called by God to stand before Him. And there's only one real question that needs to be answered. Did you accept Jesus as your Savior or not? That's it. 
If you accepted Jesus as your Savior, then it's eternal life. But the possibility is unfathomable. But if not, it's still eternal life, except it's eternal life separated from Him. And that is unfathomable as well, except it's not good fathoms. And that's what Paul's saying here. If it's false, then it's false, and don't worry about it. Just do whatever you want. But if it's true, your life has to change into align with God. That's a huge thing that Paul is saying. It's not something that we should take lightly. And so I've actually spent several sermon series just on the resurrection, going through all the different things. In fact, last, um, I think it was Easter, we did this thing called um, proving the empty tomb wrong. And we went through the three best arguments of why the empty tomb was not empty. Or was, em- yes, was not empty. So there was something there. Um, and we went through all of them. And then we came to a conclusion after every single one of them said it, it doesn't hold water. The argument doesn't hold water because of all the evidence around it. And I got to tell you, a, about a month ago, someone posted on that. It was an atheist. They posted on that and they said, this is clickbait. Because a clickbait thing is where you tell one thing and you actually do something else. The title of the video was um, Proving the Empty Tomb Wrong. I guess it's clickbait. We tried to prove, we actually did try to prove the empty tomb wrong. But that's the thing, is what Paul's trying to say. Is that if the empty tomb isn't empty, Christianity is false. If it is empty, Christianity is true. And our lives have to change. Now, real quick, I want to read chapter, we're going to go through uh, verse 34 here. And I want to read just 29, because 29 is one of those things that, it's a verse, one of those things that has caused problems. I want to read it to you, and then we're just going to deal with that, and then we're going to finish off. He says, verse 29, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Okay, I just want to tackle this one little verse right here. Paul, it sounds like if you just listened to it, just read it, it sounds like Paul is saying people are being baptized for the dead. Now what Paul's doing here, and we've already seen this several times. We saw it in, uh, when Paul talks, uses the terminology in chapter 6 where he says um, all things are lawful. It's a Corinthian saying. We talked about this in chapter 11 where he's talking about women shaving their heads. That was a prostitution thing. And so all these things are happening in Corinth. Also what's happening in Corinth, they're not just teaching that Jesus didn't bodily raise, but they're taking pagan ideas of how do you get through salvation, and people, how do you get through salvation? You get through by working really hard. That's the idea. And so they're saying, how do we do this? Well, we baptize. That's how we, we do some good works. We baptize. And so they're taking these ideas, and then they say, well, I want my, my deceased family to get there because ancestor uh, not worship so much, but acknowledgement is huge and prevalent in the Greek and Roman world. So they're saying, well, I want them to be saved as well. And so they start baptizing people for the dead. But Paul uses the language and he says, what about those? And it's really this idea that he's separating himself. It's those people. And he's using it as kind of 
if those people over there that have no clue about how to get to salvation still believe that there's a bodily resurrection, basically the idea is, why can't you? Who say you believe in Christ? Because Ephesians, I want to share this, Ephesians Ephesians 2.8, Paul says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a, it's a, a point of obedience. We had talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's a point of obedience. But these people were using it as a way to save you. And Paul's just saying, those people don't understand what's going on, yet they understand that there's a bodily resurrection why can't you? And then he actually himself says in the next verse, and as for us, so those, right? And us, as for us, why do we endure ourselves every hour? Endanger ourselves every hour. I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if not the dead are raised? He says, why am I putting my life on the line all the time? Why am I getting rocks thrown at me? Why does he endure shipwrecks? Why does he do all this stuff? Walking towards his, he knows eventually that he's going to die for his faith. And then a little, several years later, he actually does. And he's walking towards it and he's asking the question, why would I do all this? Why would I tell you that I have seen Christ raised if I didn't? Because Paul had himself a pretty good place. He had himself a pretty good job persecuting the church. And he's like, why would I give that up? And this is where he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If Christ hasn't been raised, what's the point? And then he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to shame you. And he's saying, look, there are some people who are ignorant. Are you ignorant? And he's talking to these people. And he tells them, and he just told them, I glory over you. This isn't like, I'm above you and you guys suck. This is, I love you really much, a lot, but are you guys going to be and are you guys going to do this? It's like, don't do this. Don't be misled. He says bad company corrupts good character. The idea there is you ever be with someone and you're like, man, they're just a, I don't like myself around them. Paul's saying that about ideas here. Don't be around those teachings because it's corrupting you. Embrace the teachings that at the beginning where he says, where I... I gave to you what I was entrusted. Hold on to that. That's good company. And so, today I want to ask you guys, how do you, how do you live? I think we fell behind there a little bit. Ethan, wake up. Um, yeah, you were pretty far behind. This time I was actually on to- task, topic most of the time. But this is the thing. So we're coming to the end. And let me see that. I, I can just tell you this. Paul is not. Oh, no, I can't. 
He's not endorsing. So there you go. He is not endorsing baptism on behalf of the day or encouraging it. There you go. No. Advocating. That's how I said it in that. Okay. So advocating. And he's saying pagans look forward to this. Now the term pagan is just anything unchristian in the scriptures. Okay. So that's why we use that terminology. All right. There's neo-paganism today and we're not, we're not talking about that. Okay. So there you go. So got it? All right. Switch it there, Ethan. Get off your phone. All right. And then, so then this is it. Paul lets us know that he believes in a body resurrection so much that he puts his life on the line because of it. So he believes it and he puts his life on the line. All right. And then here's the last one. Well, yeah, I mean, wow, man, whoever made those outlines really put a lot into it. Um, and then, so, and then he puts as a counterpoint, right, if, if the body isn't raised, and now we're bogged down. I, I was on a roll. Okay. Ooh, ooh, too fast at that. Okay. And then since Paul knows Jesus raised, he wants us to embrace the teachings of the bodily resurrection and reject the idea that was just spiritual. Okay? So we're getting to that point. Wow, man, now you're moving like a wind. Ride like the wind, bullseye. Yeah, I'm just, I'll just have to print it out. Yeah. Okay. So now this is the thing. We are being called to live as if the... In the reality of the bodily resurrection, that's what Paul's calling us to right now. He's calling us to the bodily resurrection to live a life. Because think of this: if Jesus raised from the dead, at the end, each of us is going to be called to count. Our words, our actions, our thoughts—all of it—we need to put through the filter of that moment of standing before God. Think about what that means. When I was a kid, I wouldn't do certain things when I was home alone because my parents were coming home. And so I didn't want to be caught doing certain things. And so I stopped doing things, not because I didn't want to do them, but because I got whooped. And a whooping isn't fun. And my dad, he denies this completely, but my dad, you guys, how many of you use those old razors? They're, they're just blades. Like the old, like you always see them in um, cowboy movies, and they go, shh, shh, shh. My dad, that's how he used to shave. Yeah, the straps. And he had one of those leather straps. He denies he ever hit me with that thing. I'll tell you. If you've ever seen the movie um, uh, Inside Out, there's a thing called core memories. Oh, yeah. Where things happen in your life that become a core memory that you can see so vividly in your life <laughs> that you can recall it like that. That strap is the one thing of my childhood I can recall every single moment of my life. And I came to a point where I'm like, I do not want to have that strap anywhere near me. And so there are things I stopped doing. It's the same with the resurrected life. 
I am seeking God now to live in a resurrected life, not because it saves me, because Jesus did 100% of that on the cross. I seek God now so that when I stand before Him, He goes, good job. You sought me the way I wanted to be sought. You allowed me to change you the way I always meant to have you. And that's what we're called to now. And so this is my challenge for you. Is this week, one, one per day, okay, to seek God and say, God, am I living the resurrected life in my words? And if we're not, if he goes, no, you're not, say, God, change my words so that they match up with the reality that your son rose from the dead. Then the next day, how about my motives? Because there's a, there's a difference, right, between doing something because you're going to get whooped, right, and doing something out of the goodness of your heart. There is a difference there. That is a motive. God, am, are my motives reflective of you raising from the dead? And just going through it one day and saying, God, I want to get closer to you and live this resurrected life as you have saved me to live in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the things that you have called me to do. How are my motives? How are my language? How is my thoughts? How are my actions? That's important stuff. And so I want to challenge you this week, one per day, and just go to God. God, help me live in the reality of the resurrected life that you have saved me to live. And then next week, we'll finish off this chapter of resurrection. Right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for all the, the things that you have done through us, through your Son, that we are unhindered in the fact that we... Sin does not hold power over us. And we only, we're the ones that give it power. So Father, help us to, to live as free people, as living people that live in your grace and your mercy and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here and that are listening in. Father, I pray for them that they would be empowered by your Spirit this week that they would better align their lives through your Spirit to what you would have to them, what you have saved them to be, what you see them in eternity as, that they would come to that reality, that their motives and their, their words and everything else would come into alignment with you so that when they speak, it's as if you speak. What they do, it's as if you were doing it. So, Father, I thank you for them. I thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, guide and direct us by your Spirit. In your son's name I pray, amen.